don't give it like a the podcast platform of the Phenomenalist by Leopold Lambert. Today, the politics of gender in Mexico with Estefania Veda Barba. Hello everyone, today my guest is uh, Estefania Vela Barba uh, and uh, we're talking again in uh, Mexico City where she's uh, an associate professor at a public university called uh, CIDE and, always, and also um, as a responsible for the sexual reproductive area in the legal division of this same university. Um, hello Estefania. Hello, hello everybody. <laughs> Uh, thank you very much for taking the time uh, today to talk to me and um, we are going to uh, we are going uh, in a few minutes to engage uh, 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 one particular aspect of your work that's particularly um, um, interested at, at looking at the mechanisms of uh, um, the construction the social construction of, of gender and uh, we're going to try to do that both uh, in a pretty general way, but also in a, in a specific uh, in a specific um, application to the Mexican situation, which I'm very interested to hear. But maybe just to begin this conversation, can you tell us a little bit what you're doing uh, these days? Um, yes. Like you said, I work at a public university, so I am supposed to be doing thorough research. <laughs> Technically, I have to apply for a JSD next year, um, and I also teach a class on gender and sexuality and the law, but a lot of my days this past year have gone by um, doing teaching and research, but aimed not necessarily at people that are part of academia. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, at CIDEM, um uh, right now, they're doing sort of like a postgraduate program aimed at police officers, from the, those that arrest you on the street to secretaries of state. Uh, and the postgraduate program has all sorts of issues from how to locate geographically a criminal to learning about human rights. And I've been co-teaching the, the session on gender um, but it's amazing because it's been, for example, about 600 police officers. So I've had to teach basically the same session about 15 times. It lasts three hours every time it's a group about 30 or 40 people. But it shows the kind of challenge that I'm facing right now, which is how to translate um, scholarship and or legal reforms in a way that everybody can understand um, in a political context in which gender and gender perspective and gender justice is everywhere, but not a lot of people are exactly clear as to what it is. And it's also a context in which people do have an idea about feminism, but it is the stereotypical idea of the feminazi, you know, you know women that just want basically to maim men and take over. So the challenge is that one, how to translate uh, feminist ideas or ideas about sexual diversity in a way that everybody police officers can understand or the general public you know um, a few months ago I started writing regularly at 
one of um, the most prominent newspapers in the country. I have a blog there, and, and it's also sort of like the, the same challenge. And, uh, for example, I also had another project that I, I was able to collaborate with the Supreme Court, who has been issuing manuals for judges on how to judge, for example, with a gender perspective. They have six different manuals, one on gender, one on migrants, one on indigenous people, one on people with disabilities. So the challenge is the same. How do you take all these human rights uh, uh, laws and constitutions and international treaties and you translate them in a way that judges throughout the country can really understand what a trans person is and how um, authorities or people violate their rights and what why that is wrong, <laughs> uh, why intersex uh, people are and how uh, we must stop certain violations, etc. So it has been a year about doing that. Um, trying to understand what the public discussion in Mexico City is, what the public uh, feminist references are, and how to engage with that. I see. <clears throat> yes. Well, uh, and maybe to, to uh, directly uh, and, um, respond to that, I, I, and speaking obviously as a complete outsider, but being in Mexico, uh, Mexico City for a few days, Uh, I was I was very surprised and uh, pleasedly surprised and I don't know you might you might you might have a a, a, a more complex vision of that and, and uh, I would love for you to to tell us about it but I was very pleasantly surprised to see in the in the Mexico City subways there are some posters of um, uh, providing public uh, posters sponsored by the city of Mexico providing. Uh, support and information for transsexual people yeah. in there, and uh, I don't know. I mean, uh, coming coming from coming from countries uh, in uh, Western Europe or the United States, I've I've never seen I've never seen that in the subway. So I was I, I was I was already um, very uh, interested about it. But uh, as I said, maybe there there's a more complex reading to bring to to it. But uh, do you, do you feel like there is actually a, a Uh, an interesting dynamic right now in Mexico that's pushing for a more for um, this kind of questions. There is a, I mean, first difference. Uh, so far, number one, Mexico City has had a lot of legal changes, and I also think social changes. This last affirmation, take it from someone that does not do empirical empirical research, sure, but sure, sure. from what I've read others do and from what I can live and see on the street. Mm. In the past five, eight years, there's been a very big opening about um, issues around sexuality and reproduction too. Uh, Mexico City is the only... Mexico City is a city, but it's also sort of like a sort of like a state. So it's the only state, I'm going to use the term right now, in the country that... Um, does not criminalize abortion on the first three months of pregnancy. In the rest of the countries, what you have are is a ban on abortion with uh, the except certain exceptions. For example, if the pregnancy was the result of rape, then you can have a legal abortion. If your life is at risk, but Mexico City is the only city in the state in which uh, it's completely legal to have an abortion on the first three months, and it's also provided by the state. This was a reform um, that was made in 2007. In 2009, they did uh, a reform to the local laws to include the, uh, the possibility of people having a legal sex change. Um, and in 2010, they were the first state 
to allow same-sex marriage. Mm-hmm. Previously, in 2006, they had allowed the equivalent of sort of civil unions. So you have these um, sort of reforms that point to this opening about our conceptions of sexual reproduction and also around gender. I mean, uh, understanding gender, gender as applied to the relationship between men and women um, and also just uh, regarding our own gender identity or whatever the hell that is, there has been an opening. The rest of the country, there has been transformation regarding same-sex marriage pushed through the judiciary. But regarding other issues, there's, I believe, a very big... They're lagging behind. Mm-hmm. And uh, now thinking about... Um, yeah... So it's good in a way. The, I think the challenge is only if you analyze Mexico City, it's going to be a lot of the issues about class issues. Now. Mm-hmm. And for example, we have the possibility of having a legal sex change, but the way it's regulated, it's still very expensive and very hard for people to actually get this done. Because in order to have your documents changed, you must go through, for example, certain uh, psychiatric evaluations that might take time. Our civil code does not require people to go through a full physical transformation. It might be a possibility, so that's good. But it's still actually hard to acquire, in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, for example, regarding um, overall women's rights, uh, you want to go into that? We have a lot of legal changes or we have a lot of rights that are consecrated in the law. But again, to actually exercise those rights, um, it's hard. For example, um, if you see employment discrimination law, that law is great if you're actually employed in a formal organization. But that law does little to help people that are in the informal sector of the economy, which in countries like Mexico, it's a very big percentage. I'm not good with numbers, but I know that it's a big percentage of people that don't have access to the minimum workers' rights. So you have those sort of issues. Um, Great on paper, but you don't look at the class issues or location issues or ethnic uh, issues you won't get the full picture. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, you, you already you already very much introduced the fact that um, uh, uh, legislation has a, a very tremendous uh, play in into the construction of gender or or, or even the deconstruction of gender. Um, but I mean, if you if we look uh, if we look at history, um, I think it would be mostly for the construction of gender. And so I'm, I'm interested to ask you a few questions about how uh, the norm and the law, and, and I mean, obviously, both of them are very uh, interrelated, but how the norm and the law, and therefore the performativity and the legality of, um, of bodies and behaviors are, uh, uh, are historically have been building gender and so uh, I read one of your articles that we will, we will uh, I will integrate in the, in the page so that uh, listeners can, can uh, read it as well um, 
but where you introduced uh, you introduced several legislation that uh, was very much organizing the role of women in society and uh, for example uh, and uh, I would love for you to, to tell us more uh, but uh, in the in the constitution of uh, 1917 of uh, Mexico uh, I, I read in your articles that women did not have access to uh, unhealthy or dangerous work which made me wonder why anyone should be allowed to have an un unhealthy work to begin with mm -hmm. but but a sort of compar compartmentalization of uh, of um, roles in society that was very strictly applied on uh, on um, on uh, bodies recognized as women and bodies recognized as men so Could you tell us more about this kind of history, history of yeah. legislation? Um, yeah, just to clear that up, our, our federal constitution established until 1974 that women could not do dangerous or... Insalubre, I don't know if it's unhealthy, but think about factories. Yeah. Think about, I mean, they have regulation, sanitation regulation that they're supposed to comply with, but... They're thinking, you know, that women are um, still weak enough that even if you comply with that regulation, they shouldn't be exposed to that. Mm -hmm. So mining, for example, no. Factories with uh, chemicals, no. And dangerous work, think about the police force precisely, the military, um, which today, for example, in 1974... Um, they changed the constitution to take away, take uh, to erase this bans for women, these prohibitions for women, but the ones that stuck were um, for pregnant women. So it's not, you know, protecting the unborn child <laughs> and the women from this type of work. But, okay, so Mexico, um, one of the things that, that I've been uh, curious about, um, number one, I'm a lawyer, and I believe that lawyers in Mexico, unlike other countries, are practically useless for anything that I find interesting because they don't give us the tools to actually study reality. Uh, lawyers in Mexico are trained basically sort of like to be judges, to learn how to read texts and sort of argue logically with them. But if you get away from the text, you have no idea what to do. So if I'm making any sort of like historical... Um, incorrect interpretation of anything, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Which, is, has, which has been one of the challenges uh, for me studying gender because many, many of, the ch of, of, of the problems today um, have to do with how the law actually operates, with how the law works in reality, with how people live and feel and use the law. And I don't have the training <laughs> to understand that. But anyway, um, so Mexico has been... A, or tried to be a constitutional state since the 19th century, incorporating the ideas of freedom and equality. Um, you have, for example, the first, uh, the, not the first, but one of the most important civil codes, uh, modeled partly after the Napoleon Bonaparte Code, Código Napoleónico, in 1870. What's interesting about this code is that actually in its first article, It establishes that people, people are equal before the law, that the law cannot distinguish based on sex, except in the cases that the law permits. Yeah. So this is one of the of, of sort of like the paradoxes that 
all of the differential treatment that men and women had in our constitutional modern state law was done under the, under the protection of the equality principle. It's not that Mexico didn't know equality. It's that its own conception of gender fit perfectly into its own conception of equality, which is, uh, until today, a lot of people say that equality does not forbid the state to distinguish. It merely forbids the state to distinguish in a way that is not justified. The second thing that they tend to say about equality is that the state must treat those that are actually equal equally and those that are actually unequal unequally. So in this doctrine, they justify the differential treatment of men and women because they were not considered equal as a matter of fact. So in the code, you had, you know, everybody's equal before the law, except even in, when it comes to sects, except in the uh, cases established in the law. Then you would go a further, a few articles further, and you would have, for example, um, when people acquired... Uh, uh, when they came to adulthood, mayoría de edad, I forget the name, legal majority. Yeah. For men, it was 21 if they were single. But women, if they were single, it was until they were 30. <laughs> yeah. Now, the problem is that if you're not single and you're married, in Mexico, we have the doctrine that the woman would, be, would come under the authority of the husband. So you would be legally an adult but you wouldn't have all the legal powers ascribed to an adult. You, for example, you lost the ability to do a lot of contracts, you know, which is the basic uh, legal definition of what being a person, legal personhood implies, and of an adult, of a citizen. The capacity of establishing legal, buying something. Mm -hmm. Women didn't have this if they were married. They, they couldn't represent uh, themselves in trial. The husband would represent... Uh, the women in trial, unless, of course, the trial was against the husband. You know? um, and they justified this. There's a famous, and in, there was a previous law in 1857, which was the law of civil marriage, which is very interesting because in Mexico, we have a very strong, at least legal, historical doctrine about the separation between state and church. And in the 1850s and 1860s, there was this sort of battle between the church and the state, and the state just took, for example, all of the church's properties and took many of the church's powers, one of which was control over the population. The church was the one that had the registry of the people, who was born, who died, who got married, who... So what the state did was create the civil registry and two years after that, create the law of marriage. And in this law of marriage, you find what is known as a... Epistola de Melchoro Campo. Melchoro Campo is one of the big reform, uh, um, statist, reformist uh, intellectuals of the time. And uh, it was included in the law, and until very recently, it was read in public when people would get married. And this said, the, the epistola, the letter said that uh, humans cannot achieve perfection alone. They need each other. But the only way to reach perfection was through conjugal duality. And conjugal duality, obviously, was that between a man and a woman, because a man is the one that is brave and strong, and the woman is delicate and frail. You know, and it sort of describes how men are. So it's sort of like this 
practical identity between, since it's the law, it's how men should be, but it's premised on how they are. Mm -hmm. And this is how they justify treating men and, and women differently, because they are different. Men are strong, women are weak. Men are brute, women are sensitive. Uh, and together, you know, this perfect dual, uh, conjugal duality, that they complement each other. You know, they are supposed to have children and give them all the virtues that is expected of citizens. Mm -hmm. So what we basically have is the Catholic doctrine of marriage incorporated into the law. Um, so this was it. You know, women came under the submission of their husbands. Um, and part of it was uh, they were also not considered citizens. This was a battle that was, I mean, and I'm talking about citizenship. They couldn't be voted for. They couldn't vote. Nor could they exercise any other public, char uh, public service. So they couldn't be part of the president's office because that's public service and they couldn't do that. So they acquired citizenship, full-fledged citizenship, until 1953. Um, I already spoke about um, prohibitions about work. They couldn't do um, dangerous work. They couldn't do work in places that are not so health <laughs> sanitized. They also, for example, could not be in commercial establishments after 10 at night. This is very interesting when you connect it, for example, to the problem of gender violence in cities, cities like Juarez, you know, because one of the um, constant complaints or one of the constant things that men or public officials try to do is, you know, women stay in your houses. So a lot of the women that were killed were factory workers, mm -hmm. factories that were not very cl close to the town, uh, with not a lot of transportation. They had to get off from work late. Uh, so there's still this thrust, even in 2014, to go back to the old norm, which is, dear women, if you stayed at home at hours uh, at, you know, that are decent for women, this wouldn't happen to you. Mm -hmm. Maybe we should uh, uh, maybe introduce uh, Ciudad, Ciudad, Ciudad Juarez, Juarez uh, to the listeners who are not familiar with the situation okay. there, but it's a maquiladores that's, that's separated uh, by their the wall between the U.S. and, and Mexico, and there's been a, a, an incredible amount of women uh, being uh, murdered yes. in, this, in this city, and uh, we can maybe indicate the, the book that um, uh, Sergio González Rodriguez brought uh, called The, the, femici the femicide, femicide Machine, mm -hmm. that, that particularly introduced this problem. But so, yeah, so I mean, that, so I, I, didn't, I didn't know that that was a solution proposed, but it, it's, it's always interesting to see whenever there's violence against women, it's always... Change your clothes, yeah, change exactly. your schedule, yeah. change your route. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas, exactly. whereas actually fixing, trying to fix the problem was where, at, at, at its source. Um, but maybe going back to the... You, you've been introducing, uh, and I mean, we've been talking about it uh, uh, a little bit in this conversation, the problem of work being particularly paradigmatic of... Uh, of um, of the problem, you in the same article I was quoting earlier, you also refer to a research that has been indicating that uh, uh, what is usually looked when 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 uh, sorry when a company does a um, tries to hire a secretary and uh, mm. 
it often tends to be a, a female secretary. Mm -hmm. Rather than looking at skills, this research uh, revealed that um, it was more attitude that was uh, that was uh, uh, um, uh, seeked, and and therefore by by. By, by doing so, there's obviously a reiteration of what I mean. It's it's what you were explaining. It's like what what you what you look for. Then what you look for is what you think already exists. But but because that's what you're looking for, then you reiterate and, and it never it never ends like that. So maybe can you can you tell us more about the specific realms of work? Yes, um, I'm going to try to introduce the article in general to get to the sure, point. Absolutely. I mean, it is 2014 and the prohibitions that I have just referred to are no longer in place. So if you're trying to find, you know, they're no longer in place, but if you look at statistics in Mexico, there's a very big problem regarding uh, work discrimination in several senses. Uh, number one, we still have a problem regarding the pay gap. Mm. So if women and men actually have and perform the same job, men still earn more than women. And here, curious historical fact. Mexico established that for the same work, there should be a same salary since 1917. So Mexico is interesting in some ways because regarding certain issues, we have laws that you cannot believe were enforced until 1970s. Mm -hmm. But in other issues, we have very progressive legislation before a lot of countries had it. One of the examples is the gender Uh, pay gap legislation, which has been banned in our constitution for almost a hundred years. Um, so we have the problem of the uh, pay gap. You have also the problem that the higher you go in companies or the higher you go in government position, the fewer women you're going to find. And the third problem is the sort of like uh, gender segregation that maybe if you look at a company's numbers, the total numbers, it'll have sort of like equal numbers of men and women. But if you delve into the company or the governmental institution and you see the types of work that men and women um, perform, they tend to be segregated. And a lot of the times the work that women tend to do is generally paid less well and with less um, ben legal benefits than the, than the work men does. So that's the sort of like the social problems we face today. And we have to find the explanation for these problems. The, the challenge is that now we cannot blame the legal norm because there's no longer any prohibitions. So why are we replicating this behavior? Um, why is it that men and women have access to different types of jobs if we're all committed to equality as we say we are committed? Now understanding equality specifically regarding mm -hmm. men and women. No. So there are several causes for this problem. Uh, the first that I identify, and it's very obvious, is you know um, people that actually hire you and promote you and fire you. What the law used to do before is now replicated by um, your boss. So you have the people that are sort of like custodians to access work. And many of them will believe that men and women are good for different things and will act based upon those conceptions that they have about men and women or gays or whatever. Um, so for this, if this is part of the problem, then you have to devise a solution for it, which is basically uh, gender uh, anti-discrimination in the workplace legislation. 
you establish sort of like trials where people can go and sue the companies for not having hired them or for having fired them for their gender or for their sexual orientation or whatever. Now, the problem is that you cannot explain the entire gender gap just because of people that overtly discriminate. Mm -hmm. And this will be more problematic the more people start stop saying <laughs> that it's because of that. Mm -hmm. Because, of course, that's what people are going to do. They're no longer going to say, I, I think you're a woman and blah, blah, blah. They're just going to shut up and take certain decisions. Um, so you have other causes. Um, for example, um, there are studies that point to what they're calling what they call the unconscious discrimination. You know that even if we admit to being progressive, and we really believe that we are, we tend to evaluate men and women differently even today. This is not just men, but women too. So, how do you tackle unconscious discrimination? I, I also like to think about this, you know, because since I'm interested in the law, it's how do you un tackle an unconscious bias? <laughs> when people don't admit to things. You know. Part of the solutions they're starting to point to is um, trying to breach uh, the opportunity, try to reduce the opportunities for discrimination by providing for mechanisms that are as neutral as possible. For example, blind uh, curriculums. If you can evaluate a person without knowing their name or their sex, mm. the further along the hiring process, the better. Um, and uh, just to get to the, the studies you, you quoted, you know, if you see gender discrimination uh, throughout time, you, you, for example, you denounce dear companies, you know, you, you are not accepting women, or you're not hiring women, or you're not employing women in certain places. The arguments that companies have been providing have varied with time. Uh, they can no longer say that women don't have the ability to do certain kind of jobs. They no longer can say that women don't have the exact same IQ as men. So the type of arguments that they have to do right now have also become more sophisticated. One of the most uh, used arguments, at least in the U.S., and that I've heard being deployed here in Mexico, is that if we don't have women in certain positions, it's not that we think they're incapable of having them, it's just that women aren't as interested in this type of jobs. So what you have to prove right now is that it's not that women don't want these jobs, it's that the very same structure of our working force, of our companies, does not promote that certain people with certain types of lives or certain types of characteristics access these jobs. And the other sort of type of work that has been done is proving that it's not women that are not interested in certain type of jobs. Is any person that you put in certain types of jobs will end up behaving the way that you today ascribe to women. This is a study about secretaries. Um, it was a study that uh, focused on sort of like the institutional arrangements around the position of secretary. And they discovered that um, this position in most companies is generally, for example, number one, it is a position in which if you're a secretary, you are probably going to remain a secretary for the rest of your life. You're not going to go up. You're not going to go sideways. You're not going to go anywhere. There's nowhere to go except if your boss gets promoted. So the incentive, rather than investing in yourself is to push for your boss to go up. 
Um, and uh, for example, it's also a position that rarely tends to be gratified economically. The, the, the way that it's uh, gratified or applauded is through either compliments or gifts or um, public displays of affection. So you end up valuing those type of uh, gratifications and just become accustomed to the fact that your salary is never going to increase. Um, also, it's a position between both of, both of these um, things that um, favors rather than certain type of work, also developing certain type of attitudes, being nice, um, watching out for your boss, and sort of like uh, institutional gossip, you know. So what you have is that the institutional arrangements push people to develop the attitudes that since we've only seen women mostly employ, have this job, we tend to ascribe for women. But it's not about women, it's about any other person that would have this job. If you put a man as a secretary, he would end up developing, developing the same kind of traits. So this just to say, you know, it is not men or women that have certain interests or certain attitudes. It's the institutional arrangement that pushes people, whoever it is, to have them. The other study that I referred to and that I find fascinating is um, when they followed around men that have blue-collar jobs in the car industry. Jobs that have very little mobility. Um, again, you're not going to go up. You're just going to stay there forever. Jobs that are not particularly challenging, but are generally the same over and over and over and over. And what they discovered is that men, number one, for example, they interrupt their careers more because if I'm not going to go anywhere, what's the difference if I stay here or if I go? Two, they start privileging their personal relationship instead of their work relationships. And even within work, they tend to privilege the relationship with their um, co-workers instead of, you know, being fixed on the job, which is a lot of the things that today people ascribe to women. If women don't get ahead, it's because they prefer their family life to their work life. If women don't get ahead, it's because they interrupt their careers. If women don't get ahead, it's because within the structure, within the company, they um, are more focused on their personal relationships than at the work. It's like, dude, it's not women. It's any person that has a crappy job. <laughs> And since women have <laughs> crappy jobs, we're going to keep on <laughs> seeing that type of behavior. Um, and also the, the last, for example, thing that you must consider is the whole institutional arrangement that we have for family life, you know, um, which is, uh, I was talking to a friend, for example, and when I read the Mexican constitution, the Mex it establishes that women must stop work if they are pregnant in the six weeks prior to the birth and the six weeks after. When I read it, I'm like, they must? It's not articulated in the language of rights. Mm. But I'm like, no, I must be crazy. This would never be used against women. I just found out about a judge. I can't say who, but she was literally forced to take her maternity leave. That's three months, three months away from a position of power, <laughs> three months away from actually deciding cases, three months away, you know, th that's, 
an example of how even something that a lot of people conceive of as a right doesn't allow women to keep on working. Mm-hmm. And of course, I mean, what does this imply? Number one, recognizing that not all women have the same type of job, not all women have the same type of pregnancy. Some women are capable of working to the last day because maybe all they have to do is read from a bed. It will be up to the women in her own circumstances to decide. But this type of institutional arrangements, even today, make it costly for women to end up being incorporated in the workforce. Why the hell would I want to have a woman who's going to cost me that? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and it, it seems like in a, in a patriarchal society, the rights that are given, uh, I mean, precisely, they're... Uh, Well, let's call them the rights for now, but the rights that are given around uh, uh, pregnancies becomes duties more than rights because exactly. because their 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 reproduction is at stake and the reproduction is what is expected from women in, exactly. in this patriarch, patriarchal society. So the female body has to be has to be almost uh, uh, saved from herself. herself. <laughs> It's it's uh, I think that shows well the perversity of those logics, but uh, maybe moving to a last chapter, let's say in our conversation and uh, and um, uh, you know be, being an architect, I'm always interested in in those issue in terms of bodies in space and bodies uh, uh, organized in space by architecture. Uh, I mean we don't we don't need to go to architecture as such, but. The, the, no, the notion of space and the notion of the city, for example, is, is something that I'm very interested in. And so... Uh, uh, I can connect work, architecture, and oh, gender yeah. issues right now. Absolutely. Don't, don't worry. That, breastfeeding, that. actually. Sure. Uh, but but what, I, what, I, what I meant to talk about is another article you wrote about um, uh, Diane Tor's uh, uh, drag, drag King uh, workshop. Uh, that uh, I personally become accustomed uh, in, through the writings of uh, Beatrice Preciado. Um, so those workshops that uh, for for one full day propose to uh, propose to women to to not only dress as men but to appear as men in such a way that they would not be recognized as anything else than men, and therefore experiencing the city from a From a body that entitles a position of power, and and I mean the, the descriptions that are made uh, of of people doing this workshop are fascinating in how their perception of the city absolutely radically changed. And I was very interested in your article because you you took the name of the workshop, which is Men for a Day, and you transformed it into Person for a Day. And I thought that was very interesting. This this notion of uh, uh, maybe associating the full Uh, legal status of person to to the bodies that are in the position of power. Can you tell us more about that? Okay. Um, Because a person is a legal status. That's yeah. Yeah, That's that's from what I from your from your from you being a lawyer. That's that's the way I understood it. I mean, we we live in a world in which the human rights discourse is full throttle and we repeat like a mantra that we are the mere fact of being born is enough uh, for us to be entitled to rights and human dignity that's the other big concept that we use right now Um, and we try to pin it to 
nature being born. It's a fact. It's a biological fact. We're alive. Boom. We're people. But this too <laughs> is a social <laughs> construction in a good way, in a bad way. I mean, uh, the, the battle around women's rights or uh, African-American people's rights or indigenous or, I mean, all those others that we've seen throughout the last centuries and throughout history are proof that what we take for granted today, being a person, is to something that you must fight for. Um, I quote, uh, you, you mentioned it, uh, an anecdote that Octavio Paz, a Mexican thinker and writer and poet, basically, um, tells about in one of his books, which is, um, I'm going to tell the anecdote, try to translate it as best as I can. Um, he's in his house, he hears a noise, and he asks out loud, you know, who's there? And it was the... The maid, today, domestic worker. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and she answers, nobody, sir, just me. And I, it's one of the anecdotes that I have read throughout my life that I find the most shattering because of how a person, or, well, I mean, that's the question, right? I'm going to use person now, <laughs> incorporates that notion of being nothing of not, it's nobody, sir, it's just me. Yeah. Well, you are somebody. Um, so it's just about that. And it had to do a lot, I mean, uh, there, a part that wasn't published in the, in the article, I, I sort of like drew an analogy between gender and nationality. Um, uh, generally, people draw an analogy between gender and race because both have a very big biological component mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of performance but you know there's this biological component I also like to draw the analogy between gender and nationality as something that is constantly produced that doesn't necessarily have to be like that we could organize or understand ourselves along other sort of axes or along other characteristics or other ways of defining ourselves but um, yeah it's just that <laughs> Everything, even something that we take for granted, like being a person, is something that we must construct day by day. Or we must and that we actually construct day by day, I guess. All right, well, that's, that seems like a great uh, con concluding, uh, concluding okay. uh, 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 manifesto, I would say. <laughs> But uh, thank you so much, Estefania, for, for taking the time to talk to me uh, today in Mexico City. And... Uh, and um, Good luck for all those uh, all those are uh, teaching to yeah. and, and I call uh, it Christianizing. Yeah, well, <laughs> and what comes next? Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs>